Hello, and welcome to the Rethink Energy weekly podcast, where the entire Rethink Energy team uh, talk about the technology behind the energy news. Uh, I'm the Rethink CEO, Peter White. Um, we have with us today the Rethink Energy editor, Harry Morgan. Hi, Peter. Uh, the, the solar analyst, Andres Vontanar. Hello there. Um, and one of our two new analysts, uh, Bogdan Avramuta, uh, but we've yet to hear from Connor Watt um, because of technical issues. Hello, Peter. Um, on the um, show today, we'd like to talk about, um, if it doesn't risk repeating everything we've ever said before, the polysilicon um, uh, shortage uh, once again, because we've got a, a revisit to that um, that we've just published. Um, we also want to look at how efficiency of electrolyzers, how much, how that's probably going to make someone very rich in the near future uh, and why it's an issue. And um, we also wonder why anyone would use concentrated solar power to make fuels with carbon in it um, for the aircraft industry. Uh, first, we're going to start with Andres. When can our readers expect some price release from polysilicon? I expect that they will – well, I, I, I'm basically certain that it will drop at the start of 2023, um, which is absolutely definite, always does that. But then I also am very sure that it will consistently fall throughout the rest of 2023 uh, and and thereafter as well. Um, there is a, a bit of a question of how far it will fall. Uh, will it? Some people have even said it will bump all the way down to the marginal cost of production, which is $6 per kilogram, uh, and, and it will bump along there already – um, just 18 months from now. I don't think it'll fall quite that far that fast, uh, but it basically will um, be only a fraction of its current level um, by then, I believe. Um, so yeah, I did I did uh, an update to my uh, polysilicon research piece that I did back in February. I went back and looked at all of the companies in China that have announced capacity, and I found a few new ones as well. Um, so yeah, there's more than there were. It's gone from you could say three million tons that might may or might may not all be built to four million tons. Um, so that's not in too too reliable. But what is very interesting is, of course, now that it's August rather than February, uh, and these feb- factories take eighteen months to build. Anything that's planned for the end of 2023 and is announced for them and has begun construction, well, it's too late for them to cancel it now. But do we know if they've actually put a spade in the ground? In many cases, they have. Yes, basically. <laughs> I mean, it, the, the the announcements, um, even the even the ones that have been that are now due to begin construction, and I did check many of them. They're enough to substantially release um, polysilicon supply, even with a big um, increase in demand for it. Uh, and I do believe that we haven't seen the end of new groundbreaking on new polysilicon factories, and it'll continue going for at least a little while longer. Um, because the thing is, right, you see this overcapacity coming, you see this price collapse coming, but it's a very rapidly growing demand uh, in the market. It takes at least 18 months to build the factory, and certainly even longer if you include full ramping up and all the rest of it and financing arrangements. So they just can't really adjust themselves um, closely to demand. And they will overshoot, I'm pretty certain, and they will have capacity, uh, overcapacity and low prices. I mean, this is China alone assuming that it's in um, a position to increase capacity uh, relative to the global demand 
in solar. I mean, it's interesting that even on the, in in Biden's new uh, Inflation Act, that um, pretty much whatever is is allowed allowed tax breaks in America is allowed them based contingent upon not having Chinese material in them and increasingly through to 2026, 27, so that, you know, 100% of everything you get tax breaks on can't have um, Chinese components in. I mean, it, it's, it's starting to look like a fully-fledged price war. Um, it, I mean, it, is that healthy? Because um, on the one hand, you know, we don't want, I think you were talking earlier, you, we don't want another OPEC uh, appearing uh, among within polysilicon. Well, the question is: um, Will the if China dominates this, uh, will they actually conspire as a cartel? These you know fifteen or so country companies. Well, actually, it's more like nineteen or twenty now. If they all go through with it, um, will they conspire to keep the price high by just not selling more than there is demand for it? You know, like the OPEC thing. Well, they didn't uh, from twenty twelve to twenty twenty. No, now. So maybe the fact that they didn't then, when the price was very low, low enough to force the, most of the Western production uh, offline, um, pretty painful for them with uh, people like Darko, they were having losses. So you could say, oh, well, they, they didn't do it then. So if they couldn't do it then, how will they do it now with three times as many people? But then you could say that they were keeping the prices low specifically to push out the Western polysilicon makers. And now that they've achieved that, now they can afford to act as a cartel because it's kind of too late, you could say. Um, uh, I don't think people understand what it's like working in, in a centrally uh, controlled economy. Hmm. Um, the middle tells you what they want and you make it. If you don't make it, if you miss, if you think you're cleverer than they are and you withhold some from the market, you are, um, you're, you're fired and, and a new guy's brought in. It's not, it's not um, all your benefits within society are based on the kudos of beating your target. It's um, yes, you can become a uh, billionaire in China, but if, if China doesn't like you as a billionaire, um, as we've seen from some of the high profile um, uh, uh, legal um, wranglings over uh, internet companies, they will stop you being quite so rich. So you, you don't, you're not entirely driven by money. So cartels are perhaps something alien or unappealing to the Chinese. Mm. I mean, and and right now, some people will be hearing what I just said and they're saying, well, the polysilicon companies are taking advantage right now by charging through the nose. And yes, they are. But the reason they're able to do that is not because they're restricting supply. They're actually running at a 97% capacity utilization rate, which <laughs> I didn't think was even possible. Um, and it, you know, and and some people have suggested that the Chinese government will step in to quash these prices that they're charging, but you know, it won't change the supply. Yeah, if they do that, then then these people won't have money to invest anymore. Exactly. So, exactly. yeah, they need they need investment certainty in the, in the east as much as they do in the west. And you know, the the government does step in to industries in China, and they do step in with the supply. They did it with uh, even in the solar supply chain, actually, with glass. They had overcapacity, so the government um, forced – I think they forced it some to reduce their output or uh, and emphasize quality over quantity. Um, you know, but, but usually it, it's not very tightly controlled. It's, it, it's usually you know, they wait for something dramatic to happen and then they step in a bit in, in a sort of crude way. 
Americans and Europeans only only project their own habits onto the Chinese. They they don't attempt to understand them, um, and and this the idea that um, that they will in some way collude. I just it's the scale of China. When you go to a, a city that's got fifty million people in it, you, you don't get that outside of or a region. You don't get that outside. Of, that's a that's larger than most countries, and they they compete. With, for, for favor with other regions. They, um, so there's genuine competition in the Chinese marketplace. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Yeah, and some of the polysilicon production is now going to be owned by fully verticalized, um, by the people who buy the polysilicon to turn it into wafers. So obviously they don't want the price to be high and they now control some of the output, or they soon will. Um, I, I think the, 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 the fact that the polysilicon supply is going to go up hugely and the price is going to go down, and that will still be true even if demand for modules surges far more than we expect. I think that's all fairly uncontroversial, though um, I have done, I have got something special in the amount of research I've done in the numbers and the announcements uh, and some other things like that. For our customers out there, before we bore them on polysilicon again, I know they are vitally interested in polysilicon, but I just want to, a big advert. Uh, if you're not a subscriber, you can't see the video that uh, Andres has made with all the detailed uh, numbers. Um, it's a very cheap subscription, $4,600. Um, subscribe now. You'll be able to view that immediately, uh, both as a document and as a, a um uh, or, uh, as a video with his explanations and with access to all of his numbers. So um, if you need um, to subscribe, email um, our publisher, Simon, at rethinkresearch.biz and ask him immediately, uh, because I know how critical it is, polysilicon pricing and the timing of plans for new solar installations. Um, next up, we're going to talk about the efficiency of electrolyzers. Um, um, Harry, you've done something on that uh, in this week's issue. The development of high SATA, high SATA, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, um, actually sounds really exciting. Um, essentially, it's an Australian startup, and it's, it's received, it's only 30 million in its Series A funding round, but the technology it's producing um, is claiming 95% system efficiency. Explain to the audience what that means. So the system efficiency when you're talking about electrolyzers is basically when the electricity you put in is obviously used to develop hydrogen and then the energy you can get out of the hydrogen when burning it, it's HHV, that the energy you get out of that compared to the energy in from electricity, that's how you work out the efficiency. So normally when you're looking at sort of the state of the art uh, PEM electrolyzers or alkaline electrolyzers, you're only looking at between sort of 75, um, only up to really around 83% efficiency. The um, and so that means that obviously high high start at ninety five percent is is absolutely huge and the way it's doing this is through um, a cap- capillary induced transportation system so water is essentially delivered a- across this porous separator meaning that there's no bubbles that are formed so when you've got bubbles in electrolyzers on the electrodes it means that the electrolyte itself isn't in contact with the electrodes so it, it that reduces the efficiency. Um, and actually reducing, so increasing the amount of contact between electrolyte, the electrolytes and the electrodes is what's really led the development of electrolyzers over the past 20, 30 years anyway. So now reducing these bubbles, um, that is what they believe can push that efficiency up towards yeah, 95, maybe even 98%. Um, and there's 
and this company, well, not the company directly, but the research surrounding this technology was published in Nature a while ago. Um, and yeah, showed some really, really promising signs. You mentioned higher heating value. Um, I came across uh, this press release from a few days ago about the uh, Bloom Energy electrolyzers. Um, the uh, what was it? The Idaho National Laboratory ran some tests on them, and um, they managed to find out um, that they can produce hydrogen at 37.7 kilowatt hours per kilogram of hydrogen. But the difference here is um, they mentioned 88.5% but lower heating value. Now, what's the difference between the lower heating value and high heating value? Can we compare these numbers, or is it apples to oranges? Um, it's yeah, it's sort of apples to oranges, right? It's, they're basically just um it's to do with what you're measuring. The, the, I haven't looked too in too much detail at the Bloom Energy um, research, although I, I believe it's to do with their solid oxide electrolyzers, which essentially yes, means correct. that they're using external heat as a as another source of energy that's going in. So when you're looking at that efficiency value, it is high, but you are capitalizing on waste heat. So it's not necessarily... A, an absolute efficiency so you have to consider that there is other energy going in there as well i mean i'm a big fan of solid oxide electrolyzers i think there's definitely place for them especially when you're looking at um industry where you've obviously got the production of heat and the need for hydrogen so you can actually do the two things in one in one place um but having a 95 percent efficient electrolyzer potentially in um without this need for heat it is great for potentially pairing with renewable energy projects, sort of large renewable energy projects, as we would normally expect to see with sort of PEM electrolyzers. I think the only weakness I can see so far is that with a capillary action, obviously relying on sort of the slow movement of uh, of liquid, of an electrolyte. So I imagine that this might be slightly more difficult to, and slightly less responsive to the dynamic nature of renewable energy. So obviously with the increase and in, decrease in wind outputs, um, solar output, whether or not the electrolyzer can react to that, uh, maybe slightly, slightly less than you'd expect from sort of a, a traditional PEM electrolyzer. So you'd, you'd oversupply them, and and then you'd you'd, you'd waste some of them. So it's a it's a capex um, versus kind of a calculation. Either you overspend, but you get what what you need, but but some of them are set idle, and then you don't get your ROI um, on on each one. But it, it, I think I like the idea because it, you would make them in small units and stack them on top of one another and just buy to order and uh, drive the the capex price down. Um, and um, yeah. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's it's a gigafactory approach. You know, it's uh, it's um, this is how we build them. That's what's important. Not uh, taking away any local uh, um, problem uh, and stopping it from becoming a project each time that you try and install them. Exactly, and I think that's how this will work, and they'll be developed in ways that the electrolyzers that are being produced are running for sort of twenty four seven. It's not on a sort of variable load basis. So that obviously lends itself to the favour of being sort of a ninety five percent efficient um, sort of modular system, and yeah, as you said, Peter, building out this at and I mean they're aiming for gigawatt scale production by the middle of the twenty twenties. So having sort of that mass manufacturing modular design means that yeah, they they will be delivering hydrogen for what they believe to be less than one dollar fifty per kilogram. But how how long how many years is it going to take them to ramp um, this into a manufacturing base? They think two, three years. So, I mean, again, it's and, and if you're looking at how long it takes to develop a hydrogen gigafactory, it is only eighteen months, two years. So, um, I wouldn't rule this company out of having that, given that those just in its early its early stage of development. I I wouldn't put it past them having a gigafactory in place by 2025. 
and actually that's that's a good plug for my upcoming research which is going to be on on the development of gig factories within the hydrogen space and the electrolyzer space so um it'll be interesting to see whether or not um high to sit within that yeah, for customers who didn't hear that properly, um, uh, um, Harry is working on a um, electrolyzer gigafactory paper right now. It should be out in a few weeks. Um, the actually the other electrolyzer story was from Bogdan, um, talking about a company H two U Technologies um, who are using. Uh, uh, him and I had a long discussion about this before he wrote it. Using AI uh, to um, discover. Um, new catalysts. I was I was dubious. Well, well tell us about it, Bogdan. Yeah, well, the um, Californian-based company um, spent about ten years developing this AI tool through the Caltech, the California Institute of Technology. It cost them about one hundred and twenty-two million dollars, and now they're using it through uh, to um, find a uh, more suitable catalyst. Um, the problem with the catalyst is that um, at the moment, PEM electrolyzers have a great dependency on materials like iridium or platinum, which are fairly scarce um, and expensive. So there's a lot of companies that are trying to drive the capex down of uh, PEM electrolyzers by finding a different material. So there's a lot of um, companies that are trying to address this in different issues. And um, H2U seem to have been um, fairly successful at it. They've ran some tests with um, a company called Denora from Italy. They're an, um, a manufacturer of um, electrodes. Um, and according to some press releases, they've been, the tests have been successful. How did they run those tests? Did, did you know exactly what it is they did? I mean, are they dealing with thousands of different uh, materials or uh, plodding through one at a time? H2U are dealing with different materials. So the AI tool, the, the way the tool works is they kind of point it at an area of elements where they think, oh, there might be something efficient over there. So we're going to point in that direction. The AI tool then runs a lot of tests, gives us some results, and then they validate, they, they also test um, all these elements in their labs in California as well. Uh, but I believe the tests that the Nora have um done for them um, were probably just on a few or maybe just even one um, catalyst. I'd love to be a fly on the wall when they get their results. You know, the AI spits out 10 results, three of which are stuff that people have tried before and there's some kind of obstacle, seven of which as everyone puzzled, you know, and, and then they go off and test them. I mean, I I, I would have thought that uh, leading chemists in the area would know um, where to look anyway. I mean, that was my issue. I didn't. I did not think this was an AI um, uh, um, area of applicability. Uh, it's not doing thousands and thousands of of of, of uh, decisions every few seconds. It's, this is searching through. Um, I, I presume um, known physical attributes of all these. Um, uh, materials, but uh, you know, what about the the ones that are unknown, and how do they model that? I, I, I'm I'm str- struggling to see why. Uh, I think people reach for artificial intelligence when they don't have any real intelligence. Well, either way, I think it's it's the one we should keep an eye on to see how it develops. Uh, we obviously don't really know a lot of details at the moment for obvious reasons. They they wouldn't uh, be able to share those details with us. So uh, I want to to keep to keep your eye on, see how it develops. It reminds me a bit of perovskites because the 
a perovskite is actually a type of molecular structure, and you can try uh, different um, elements in that molecular structure. And so there's a, a many, many different types of, um, actual, uh, of, of combinations of elements that you can use to make a perovskite photovoltaic. And a lot of the experiments are, are to do with refining exactly which one you want to use. So, so these, um, these, this electrolyzer catalyst, there's a lot of different – it's a com- very complex module, uh, molecule, is it? And they can – I mean, how many different potential molecules are they dealing with? Well, I, I think this, when you talk about chemistry, I think it's not as simple as just, oh, there's 118 elements or however many they are. Don't quote me on that. Um, I think that they're probably testing combinations of elements or rather elements in different forms. So I think it, it can get quite complicated. It gets, gets complicated really quickly because some catalysts only behave as catalysts in the presence of a co-catalyst. Um, and then you start to increase the orders of magnitude um, of the combinations um, quite considerably. So um, we know, we know um, I remember the first piece Harry wrote on this. Um, there was about some co-catalyst work come out of Kyoto University uh, in Japan, and that, that was um, – you know, one catalyst being stimulated to behave by another or working in tandem with another. So these um, these reactions ca- can be inordinately complex. Um, perovskites, I think it's about eight metals with about um, six gases. So I think you've got, you know, m- multiple combinations of those uh, and they're different valent bonds. Um, so, again, maybe only 100 different materials or maybe 200 different materials to actually look at. You can do that physically. But even so, it's taken nearly 20 years for Provskites to come out of the labs and they're barely out of the labs. Okay. Um, there's another story that um, Bogdan worked on this week. Um, and initially I got a bit confused by this because uh, one of the a company Andrew's written about, Heliogen, um, who has got a kind of second-generation um, – concentrated solar power system um it's partnered with a company um whose whose main reason for existing is to pull um pull carbon uh, direct air capture um and combining it with hydrogen to make um fuels um for the aviation industry so uh, initially i was very negative on this um because i thought it was yet another carbon capture story but i mean the IPCC insists that we're going to need direct air capture. I'm, I'm still very uh, wary of there ever being a business model. But if the business model is making um, aeroplane a, a sustainable air fuel, then maybe maybe this is the answer. Uh, Bogdan? Well, I think the problem with sustainable air fuels is that everybody's trying to just get under the SAF umbrella, really whichever way they can. If they can prove they can either capture some carbon or um, use some form of um, emissions that would have otherwise ended up in the atmosphere, so like um, methane from rotting waste, um, they can just say, oh yeah, we're making SAF, we're going sustainable, we're trying to push aviation to go green and and people will buy from them. Uh, We've written about, um, I think it was Lufthansa, and United Airlines, we mentioned them striking deals to purchase um, quite a, quite a bit of um, sustainable aviation fuel over the next decade or so. But the the really the main problem with this is that 
it seems like the industry is just spending resources looking at cutting upstream emissions from making kerosene instead of trying to make um, planes um, fly with no emissions. So everybody's kind of aiming for this net zero um, goal instead of the what we should probably aim for, which is fully green, no emissions. Um, I don't think that luxury is something we can afford given that the kind of global carbon budget is slowly running out and there's plenty of industries who keep borrowing from it. So it's it's just a bit mind-boggling, really, um, why so many major players like Boeing, Airbus, Rolls-Royce, GE. Yeah, let's just explain the problem here very succinctly. Um, um, SAF is, is in its infancy. It will take 10 years to roll out. Um, no one's quite sure of the right route to make it. Um, we all agree that if if something is giving off either uh, methane or, or CO2 anyway, then to um, borrow that material and borrow the CO2 and methane and then release um, the, the, um, uh, the greenhouse gases into the atmosphere is at least not increasing the total um, uh, uh, amount that's emitted. But that's unfortunately, correct. it's still eating into the carbon budget, which to stay under 1.5 Cs is is tiny. Um, so we, we're all keen to see us move beyond SAF. But some SAF is, you know, when they talk about it being out of um, uh, things like cooking oils and animal fats, well, we're not going to be eating animals for much longer if the vegans get their way. So that's probably a, a bit of a misnomer. Um, and um, there's no way you can um, take uh, what was rotting under the ground for um, 450 million years and compare that with something we can grow on the surface of the planet now instead of food. So we know that that's a kind of dangerous area to play with. The big problem has always been that these are companies we can't trust anyway because they've proved untrustworthy uh, because the oil companies in particular denied vehemently for multiple decades that taking natural gas out of the ground led to any fugitive emissions. That's now been proven. They were lying for 20 years. So how do we trust them again? The the problem I have with this story, uh, I quite like it, is that Heliogen's a a company we respect. Dimensional Energy is um, uh, keen to um, to take CO2 not from an oil process but from direct air capture. I just struggle with the – maybe this is the business model for direct air capture. You make aircraft fuel – and at least the budget doesn't increase. Um, but we would all like to see it become hydrogen um, in, in in a very quick space of time. What um, what, what uh, Bogdan keeps finding is no one's quite sure what that space of time is. Are we going to have the first hydrogen aircraft in 2035? Are we going to have them sooner? Um, are we going to have to live with SAF till almost 2050? Um, and people don't know so they're designing um, SAF efficient engines now for launch in 10 years they're, 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 SAF works with existing engines so why do we need the efficient ones for perhaps another greenhouse gas kicker in, in 2030 time frame um, I'm not sure that they all agree on um, that the aircraft designers both both the engines and the, and the, and the designer companies um, actually know um, when these um, uh, these transition points are going to happen. 
I think the, the the way I see it here really is that I mean Saf. I don't think Saf implicitly is a bad thing. I think um, if you can make it carbon negative, if you if you're taking a full carbon cycle approach to it, then I think it is a fantastic idea. I think uh, the way Sky Clean are looking at it with producing green hydrogen and synthesizing that with um, with the methane that's being reduced from waste, then I think then yeah, you really do have a carbon negative solution or at least a carbon neutral solution um and i think yeah use that while you can in the top scale of aircraft and but i think when you're looking at sort of from the bottom up i think there is no way to avoid hydrogen i think hydrogen has already been demonstrated in small planes i think it'll be demonstrated in commercial planes in the next five ten years and then that will be t- attacking it from the top uh, from the bottom up i think the other the other way to consider it is that the airline industry aviation industry could really start to re- to shift if we move towards hydrogen towards um more short scale flights so seeing uh, so rather than having sort of long haul flights used for everything using a, a series of, uh, of shorter flights using hydrogen or, or sm- using a series of smaller aircraft uh, but again it's all on the cost of it on the cost of that so i think the reason the aviation industry is looking to go down the saf route is because of this lack of clarity at the moment within the industry of what falls under the saf umbrella but also because, as we've said, it's the, it's the path of least resistance. They don't have to change the aircraft they're using. They just have to inject inject more, uh, a different type of fuel. So I'm not surprised that they're going down this route, but it's the same we've, It's the same problems that we've seen with biofuel used in power generation. I mean, if you look at Drax in the UK, for example, this week, um, Quasi Quateng, the UK energy minister, has come out and said that, um, actually, yeah, we probably won't be supporting um, the importation of biomass for fuels from 2027 onwards, as we they we sort of anticipated they would otherwise. So that um, perception of biomass versus waste as a feedstock for these fuels, I think, is is that is what will define the future of, of sustainable aviation fuels and whether or not there is any success. Because personally, I think biomass is too constricted in terms of its ability to reach the scale of the aviation industry. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we we preach, you know, if there's a choice between revolution and evolution, uh, and both are going on at the same time, the revolution wins because it, it it has an S curve. It takes a while to develop, takes a while to get off the ground, but once it starts accelerating, it's irresistible and it sweeps all evolution aside. Um, and and I think hydrogen is on the S curve. It's the early part of the S curve. I think SAF is is just a mild. Uh, lift its evolution do take take a few percentage off at a time uh, until you can't take any more off and that that's as you say least change um, decision making um, doesn't work in in the energy transition not not really not over anything longer than five or ten years yeah hydrogen is definitely going to play an important part in the future i think long-haul aviation is in a tough place because of electric propulsion and because simply they just can't, electric motors can't compete with uh, gas turbines in terms of, of thrust. So um, long-haul um, operators are in a tough spot because they don't really have an alternative right now. The question we keep coming back to is, is SAF going to scale up in time? Well, the answer is the answer is it's not going to scale up in time. We'll still be scaling up SAF when it gets displaced. Either, either way, we're going to cover this in a future... Um, aviation forecast is due to come out in a couple of months. Absolutely, and that that will be a, um, I'm sure a lot of customers will be very uh, be looking forward to that. So we're we're um, I think that's enough for this week. We've um, we've uh, looked at three stories from 
um, a kind of uh, about a, a, a third of the content of the issue. The issue is free. It's available at www.rethinkresearch.biz. Click the energy button, read the weekly analysis. Um, everything under the forecast and data button is our paid service um, where we specifically um, host long-term forecasts for uh, every form of renewable energy and everything associated with it. Um, if you need information on that, email Simon at rethinkresearch.biz and I'm sure he'd be glad to talk you through it. Um, for now, that's um, that's me, Peter White, um, uh, signing out from our latest podcast. Thank you.